In an interview with Newsweek magazine, noted atheist Samuel Harris said this, I don't want to pretend to be certain about anything I'm not certain about. I don't want to pretend to be certain about anything I'm not certain about. And I want to begin this series in our study of Luke by saying I think Sam Harris is giving each of us good advice. Don't be certain about anything you can't be certain about. What a way to start a series. Quoting Sam Harris. The reason I say that is because if you open your Bible to Luke 1, 1 and 1, 1 to 4, I think if Luke were here, he would say, yes, just as a stop clock is right twice a day, I think Sam Harris actually says some things that are true now and then. Certainty is actually an important matter for the Christian. And let's look at the first four verses of the gospel according to Luke. And if you listen carefully, you'll see that Luke thinks certainty is very important. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Today we start a series in the Gospel of Luke, a gospel I like to call the Gospel of Certainty, because it is definitely an emphasis in the book. He wants his reader, his listener, by way of application, you and me, to have certainty about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's call it the gospel of certainty. And uh, I've already been praying and will continue to pray. And we can pray uh, for one another that in the days ahead, our lives will be changed. And as our lives are changed, the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. And so over the next 27 years in our study of Luke, a lot of great things will happen. Probably not, probably more like 127 weeks or something like that, but I'm, I'm praying and, and hoping and trusting that it'll be a great time together as we, we should be increasing in our level of certainty regarding who Jesus is and what he's done, and, and that sort of changes everything. This morning I have five words for you that will help you uh, get ready for our study, even over these next days. Five words that'll help you with the first four verses, but also that'll, that'll help chart a course for everything we're going to do. So if you want to write down these five words, um, some of them are actually phrases. Number one, uh, among us, among us. Number two, accomplished, accomplished. Number three, just as, just as. Number four, orderly, orderly. And number five, certainty, certainty. Among us, number one, accomplished, number two, just as, number three, four, orderly, five, certainty. And yes, each of those is actually lifted from our four verses. Uh, I realize they make no sense in one sense at this point in time, um, but it'll really help us um, chart a course for what we're going to see. So we're going to look at each of those this morning. It'll help us to understand Luke. It'll help us to get ready for our study of, of the gospel according to Luke. 
and really see what needs to be emphasized, I think, as we go. So number one, among us, among us. Look at verse one with me again, if you would, and you'll see that it's there. In verse one, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, comma, and we'll stop there. Among us. He's writing a narrative, a historic narrative about things that he says happened among us. And I'm going to repeat it enough times that I hope it sinks in your mind a little bit. Uh, He's describing something, narrative, he says, historic narrative of something that happened in his mind. No, something that happened in his heart. No, something that happened on another planet. No, something that happened because of a, a, a bunch of rumors. No, something that happened spiritually, but not physically. No, 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 no. He's making an emphatic point. I'm going to write a narrative about something that happened, what? Among us. Among us. And it's worth emphasizing now because he's going to emphasize it throughout the book. Even if he doesn't say it again and again and again, he's making a point. He's not talking about the, the, the out there, non-historic kind of thing that people might muse regarding. I'm talking about something that happened among us. How about real time, real space, real history? In fact, we could just say right now that Christianity is is an among us religion. Okay? It is an among us religion because it's tied to historical events. Real people. Real historical events. And Luke is writing as, a, as an historian trying to give the details so that you will know and ultimately you'll have confidence that the Christ you're trusting in is the Christ who was, in our minds, no, among us, who's actually here. It's a big deal to him to make that kind of emphasis. And it should be a big deal to you. We're not talking about the religion that is made up in your mind or it feels like it's right or something like that based upon propaganda among us, historic events. And he's going to belabor that. Sometimes I like to say, uh, just to, to rattle it in people's minds, Christianity is not a Narnia religion. I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. I like Narnia. I can't wait for you know, the, next, the next movie to come out, so to speak, or whatever it might be. But Christianity is not fantasy. Okay? Whenever I have had opportunity to be in Israel, I always think of that statement. Christianity is not a Narnia religion. Okay? You can actually walk on the dirt. That doesn't prove that Christ's claims are true. I'm not saying that. But we're not talking about some made-up kind of thing with made-up people, made-up characters. Luke is going to make sure we understand that. We're talking about what happened among us. That's why in chapter 2, verse 2, he's going to say, uh, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Real person. Last time I checked, Syria is a real place. Okay? Real people. Real places. In chapter 23, he's going to talk about Pilate and he's going to talk about Herod. Real, historical, verifiable figures so that when we get to chapter 24 and it says he was raised from the dead 
We're not talking about on a different plane and merely in our heads or in our hearts. He's been talking about historical reality in the real life here and now. And when he talks about Jesus being crucified, it's real crucifixion. When he talks about Jesus being resurrected, he means real resurrection bodily because it's the among us religion, which makes it different from some other religions, some other religions that even claim to be Christian. And he's not unique to this. How about what John says? First John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. See, that's an among us religion, which we looked upon and how about, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, talking about Jesus. Again, among us. Paul, who would have been a friend of Luke, as we will see later, says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, he's talking about in an among us fashion, a physical fashion. If Christ hasn't been raised, if it's not an among us religion, and it's just in your mind or in your heart, if he hasn't been raised, it says in verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You're an idiot. We're a bunch of fools. Our study of Luke's gospel should be helpful in increasing our certainty level because it's emphasizing historic real actual events and luke does a good job of documenting these things so let's remember among us even later when he's not using that statement he's talking about the real life and the here and now two thousand years ago Sometimes when you talk to people who are professing Christians or, or non-professing Christians, they'll talk about how, how you know, yeah, Jesus raised from the dead. And you say, bodily? Well, I wouldn't say that. But he raised from the dead because he did in my heart. The technical word for that in the theological world is called, it's called neo-orthodoxy, new orthodoxy. But it's not orthodox at all. Luke would say, that's a load of garbage. He either did or he didn't. And if he didn't, why do you even say you're orthodox? Why do you even say you're a Christian? And Paul would say, you're a total fool. Because if he didn't bodily among us raise from the dead, then there's really no hope. Because we're actual beings were among us people and so whether or not someone's using the title neo-orthodox or not that's the technical word a lot of us think in those terms sometimes luke wants to say don't be that kind of person it's either true or it's not and let me show you that it's true and let, let, let me do the good job of a good historian so you'll be trusting in the real Christ who really raised from the dead, who really gave himself up for us so that you can have a higher level of certainty. So remember that as we go. Remember the among us. Now let's move on to another statement that might be helpful as we go, and that would be accomplished. Accomplished. Verse 1, let's go ahead and read verse 1 again so that we can catch the flow. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. I'll be honest, I got excited when I started thinking about that. Accomplished. 
why did I get excited when I started thinking and meditating and, and, and contemplating? What, what does he mean by accomplished? Well, because Jesus was more than a Jewish boy who grew up in Palestine and then was falsely accused and then crucified. He accomplished something. See, Luke is going to help us understand that it's more than just describing historic events of a normal individual. He's talking about meaning of what he did, behind what he did, under what he did. That Jesus was unique and there's theological significance underlying what he did. Let me tell you about what was accomplished about what was fulfilled. And by the way, you could even translate that word that's translated in the ESV, accomplished, as fulfilled. The Greek word that is used is actually uh, a word that we can translate that way. It means fulfillment. It has to do with meaning, or as my translation that I'm preaching from today, has it accomplished. So Luke is going to do a great job of not only giving us the facts... Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. What's that from? Dragnet? Anyway. When did they take that off the air? Like 1974? Luke is going to do a great job giving us the facts. But he's going to give us the interpretation of the facts. He's going to show us fulfillment how Jesus is more than just someone who's a carpenter's son. He's not less than that because he's really among us. But he's more than that. And let me just give you a sampling of what we're going to see in Luke's account. Let's look at chapter 2 for a sample, then chapter 19, then chapter 20, 24 for just a sampling of what he means when he talks about this meaning of accomplished, what he actually did, that there's meaning behind his actions. That yes, he did miracles, but there's a reason for the miracles. Yes, he was mis- mistreated, but there's meaning behind the mistreatment. Yes, he was born of a virgin, but there's meaning behind that. And do notice chapter 2, verse 10. Let's choose that one where it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Well, now we're on to something, a little clue at least, a little flag that says, hey, this just isn't, this is great news. There's going to be a new baby in the family. Well, yeah, there's a new baby in the family. That, everybody can be excited about that. But actually, he says, and this is relevant for everybody. There's implications. There's significance for all the people here, which is going to fit what Luke does because he talks about Savior of the Jews and Savior of the Gentiles because he's not just one who's born and lives and dies. He's actually here and there's significance behind his living and his dying and his rising and there's significance, he says, for all people, not just Jews. And then if you turn over to chapter 19, we can look at other verses that talk about significance, uh, fulfillment, um, Jesus accomplishing something, but let's go just right to the heart of the matter. Chapter 19, verse 10. It says in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Oh, so he's not just a guy that had this stuff happen to him. There's accomplishment on behalf of others. This is where it becomes so relevant to you and to me. 
He's so much more than an example to follow. He actually came to rescue, to redeem, to save. Luke wants us to see not only the historic events, but the meaning behind the historic events. You see? And now let's look at one more in chapter 24, which is uh, the famous one that ties it all together at the end. But he's headed this way throughout the whole thing. And we know he's headed this way throughout the whole thing because of the way he starts it in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to write to you a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Not just happened among us. Yes, they happened, but there's meaning, and so they were accomplished among us. He says in verse 44 of Luke 24, Then he said to them, These are my words and I, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. A synonym for that would be accomplished. It's not the exact same Greek word. It's a very similar word because it's the same idea. Let me tell you how I accomplished these things. Let me tell you how I fulfilled these things. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written and that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So now you have forgiveness, which assumes atonement. And now we have him saving people from their sins. Maybe let me put it in these terms. Maybe it's a little shocking for you to hear the first time. Jesus is not, Jesus was not special because he was crucified. Hear me out. His crucifixion was special. But Jesus of Nazareth was not unique or special because he was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth was unique and special because of the meaning of his crucifixion and the significance of his crucifixion and what that means for people who trust in him. Say, how can you say that? Well, here's where sometimes we're historically naive. Luke doesn't want you to be historically naive. Here's a little extra biblical history. King Darius crucified 3,000 Babylonians. Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 from the city of Tyre. Alexander Janius crucified 800 Pharisees. Titus Vespasian crucified so many Jews in AD 70 that the soldiers had no room for the crosses. There's been a whole lot of people crucified. And that doesn't take away from the severity of it or the awfulness of it, but you've got to know that a lot of people have been crucified in history. It's common historic knowledge. Luke is saying, I'm writing the historical narrative to describe real life, real time events, but I want you to know what was accomplished. So that when you get to chapter, to the, the, the final chapters and you learn about Jesus' crucifixion, you don't say that was just another crucifixion. Poor Jesus. I want you to know what was accomplished. I want you to know the theological significance that he wasn't just another crucified guy. He's dying to save us from our sins. He's dying to, to atone for our sins. He's giving himself up for us. And so Luke is going to give us the history and he's going to give us the meaning. And you look for that. Look for it as we go.
He'll disciple us. He'll mentor us in seeing real history, meaning underline the history, which is what we want, which is what we need. We need it to be more than just a historic event. It's because of who he was, because of who he is and what he accomplished. Number three, to benefit us and help us, just as. There's a just as statement. Let's so we can catch the flow and, and let's just go back to verse 1 one more time at least in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us verse 2 just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers or servants of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you so verse 2 begins with just as. I just want to take a moment to talk about just as. Just as shows purposeful similarity. Purposeful uh, complementing what is been written, what has been testified from eyewitnesses and servants. Luke stands way, way apart from all kinds of religious leaders and people who have written other false gospels who've come along and said, well, you know, they all got it wrong. And I, they don't say this, but they mean, and I am God's gift to humanity because I've got it right. And I was taken to this special place and a special angel gave me these special things and I somehow uniquely for no one to notice and no one to know, I've got the secret. You know, me has it. Me wants it. It's Gollum-esque. Whenever you hear somebody teaching like that, you think Gollum. Gollum's ugly. He's not being a Gollum here. He's purposefully emphasizing similarity. He's not throwing the, the other guys under the bus. If he has Matthew in view, let's say, or Mark, he's not throwing them under the bus. He's saying, I'm like them. He's showing continuity. You know, uh, we're talking about eyewitnesses. I, I'm, I'm not so stupid as to say, I'm God's gift and I figured it out. I'm going to give you a totally different story. Yes, he's going to offer something different. We're going to see the difference. He's looking for a bit fuller picture historically. But he's really making a point to say, I'm the same. I'm the same. Just as. Just a little, you know, hint of application. When you hear people doing the exact opposite, don't be impressed. Luke, the real deal, says, I'm just like those guys like them since we're on the topic of Luke and I've been saying Luke I think this is as good a time as any for us to talk about authorship just a bit and then we'll move on to number four so still talking about just as but let's talk about why we think Luke wrote this um, if you look in your, your your text you look in your Bible you don't see the word Luke unless you look at the top of the page um, but it's not actually in the passage or if you have a study Bible or something um, why do we call it the gospel of Luke well we call it the gospel of Luke because Christians Pretty much I've always called it the Gospel of Luke. It's not really been an issue of big, de- big debate. Um, it's commonly been accepted as something that Luke wrote. Um, 
Let me tell you why just quickly. Uh, why the Christian church now for a couple thousand years has not been debating this issue. We've said, you know what? Gospel of Luke, it makes sense. One reason would be because, uh, and we have to put some pieces together, but when you put the pieces together, you go, I guess that makes sense. I wouldn't, I wouldn't die on that hill like I'd die for the gospel. I think I'll probably sign up with the rest of the church for the last 2,000 years and say, I think Luke probably wrote it. First hint is, um, Luke and Acts are written by the same person. Okay, So you have book one and book two, volume one and volume two. We know this to be the case because of things like chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. Listen to what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then we go to Luke, and it's Theophilus, and he's talking to the same guy. So whoever it is, whoever wrote, it seems to be the same person. Book 1, book 2. Next, on a reason why Luke would have been the author, he's someone who's close to Paul. Someone who has a close relationship with the Apostle Paul. We know this when we start reading through the book of Acts. And if you've ever done this, you'll, you'll, and you've read through the book of Acts, you start seeing once in a while there are these we statements describing Paul's events. And you say, we, we, he doesn't say who he is, like John doesn't say who he was when he writes John. Chapter 16, verses 10 to 17. Chapter 20, verses 5 to 15. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 18. Chapter 27, verses 1 to chapter 28, verse 16. There's this we emphasis. So whoever this writer is, talks about himself in a way that's humble, like John does in John's Gospel, but it's, it's we. The author is with Paul some of the time. And then when we start putting the pieces together and we say, well, okay, if it's someone with Paul who wrote Acts as well, who would qualify based upon the people that we know about at least? And we'd say, the person who would qualify is somebody who's smart, somebody who's educated, somebody who's been trained formally, who's been educated formally. You know, Luke isn't like Peter, you know, cross him off the list. He uses fisherman Greek, you know. Um, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, you know, who has fish-shaped Greek. Uh, he's not formally trained. But based upon the way this guy writes and his style, his use of the original language, his ability to argue a point, he argues like an academic. He's been trained formally. So then we start looking at the list of people who accompanied Paul. And though we wouldn't want to die on this hill, there is one who comes up in multiple lists, so he was close with Paul, and one that really stands out. So we see him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. We see him also in Philemon, verse 24. But in Colossians 4, 14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And again, we're doing some detective work, but that's where the, the light goes, ding, 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 ding. Oh, there's a doctor in the house. And when we try to do a little Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes in here and try to put the pieces together, he's the most likely candidate because he's been formally trained. And he understands academics because he's been trained to be a doctor. He has good skills in observation. So that's why Christians now uh, for a long time have said, it seems like Luke wrote this and we'll attribute it to him. Is it essential to understand? No, um, but it's interesting because he has very similar things that Paul emphasizes. That it has to be historic or we're hopeless and foolish, things like that. 
Well, now let's move on to another word, a short word that we can just spend a short amount of time on if we're going to understand Luke's gospel account, and that would be orderly. Orderly. He says in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. An orderly account. New American Standard says consecutive order. Some people say that's a little too strong, but it certainly has, carries the idea that might be involved. It's orderly for sure. Is it consecutive order? The idea is it's full. It's the orderly account that includes the, 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 the details. It gives you the full details, the full spectrum, which is why the NASB translates it consecutive order. And that does help us at least grasp the idea. Luke wants to write something orderly in that it's going to go back and do birth narrative that other gospels don't do. You guys are reminded of this every, every Christmas time, right? You're like, well, I think we should do some Christmas devotions. Matthew, that's a dud, you know? That doesn't really tell the story. What's the deal there? Um, Mark, that's not very Christmassy either. And then maybe you think, well, I'll go to John. Man, that, that doesn't have the Christmas spirit either. Luke. It's because it's an orderly account. He goes birth narrative, pre-birth narrative. And interestingly enough, he goes all the way at the end to the ascension. And then if you're going to add book two in the book of Acts, now you have the work of Christ by the power of his spirit in and among the church. He gives the orderly, orderly account because he gives the full spectrum of things. And so we're going to appreciate that as a church as we study through this gospel account. There are other things that different gospels offer. Matthew has more of a Jewish flair, Jewish flavor. Yeah, that's important and significant. I love the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Mark is more Gentile and kind of lean and mean. Well, here we have the orderly account that's, that's, that's full, that gives the details, that gives the intricacies of the history. Why? So that we can have certainty, like we wouldn't have if we didn't have Luke's account, like we wouldn't have otherwise. So number five, and finally, let's use the word certainty. Certainty. We've already seen it, but one more time, let's look at that text. Verse three, let's start there. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the Greek New Testament, the word for certainty is used at the end, and grammatical scholars would have us to know and suggest to us it's purposefully at the end so as to punctuate things. Sometimes you put words you really want to emphasize at the beginning of a sentence. Sometimes you put them at the end. I want you to know this, Theophilus. I want you to understand this. I'm writing this for you in a unique way so that you, punchline of the whole thing, have certainty. That's what I'm aiming for. You have a confidence that you wouldn't have otherwise. I'm going to give you the full story, the historical details, so that you can have extraordinary confidence so you can have certainty that you wouldn't have otherwise. We don't know much about Theophilus other than he has a cool name. Could be a Jewish name, could be a Gentile name. It's used in both cultures. But because he's called Most Excellent Theophilus, 
probably isn't a Jew as one who is going to be in a place of significance uh, uh, in, the, in the public realm and public sphere. Luke uses it elsewhere for someone else who is a power player in the culture. And he says, most excellent. And so it's someone of significance. It's a, someone who's some kind of dignitary, probably a Gentile. Another clue there, there is in Luke's account, it's very Gentile-oriented. So why does Theophilus need to have greater certainty? We don't know for certain. Maybe because of persecution. We know that's swirling around big time at this time. And you've got Christians caving in or wanting to cave in. Luke wants Theophilus, who's been taught, so Christian, probably, at least someone who's learned the gospel, he wants him to be bolstered up. He wants him to be strengthened. He wants him to have a little bit more firmness in his stance. And I don't know about you, but I could use some of that now and then. I'm thankful that we can look at this, even from Gentile perspective, like most of us. Historic details, orderliness, we're not talking about Narnia faith. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Theophilus needed some help because now in God's providence, we're getting some help. I'm so drawn to the word certainty probably because it's such a timely word in our culture. Certainty. Just try using it sometimes, especially in a religious context. Certainty. Our, our, the culture we live in is just flooded by subjectivism, especially when it comes to the religious realm, religious sphere. Certainty tied to religion? We say things and hear things like this. If it's true for you, it's true. Luke wouldn't have thought so. If it's true in your heart, then it's true. Luke wouldn't have thought so. That's not what gives somebody a strong faith. Or how about this? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Why didn't Luke just say that to Theophilus? You know, the history doesn't matter. It might just be propaganda. And it doesn't really matter anyway as long as you're sincere in your heart. Or we hear things like, you just have to take it on faith. Implying that facts aren't involved. I love it that Luke comes out swinging. <laughs> In a loving, gracious way. Not swinging for Theophilus. But tearing down these false mindsets and philosophies that are actually anti-Christian and I want to write these historic events in details and we're talking about eyewitnesses here and I'm going to write these things to you Theophilus so that you can have certainty I want to echo that I want to echo that I want to tell you you shouldn't take things on faith if by that we mean don't confuse me with the facts I know what I believe if by that we mean, well, we know it's not historically true, but, you know, you should believe it anyway. Leap of faith. No. No, that's not how Christianity works. Our culture uses faith in that sense. 
Just, you just have to believe, even though we know it's not true. What? How unethical is that? Just as, a, as something we're going to see in Luke, let me try to encourage you and help you and know that the Bible uses faith in relationship to its object. Now, that might be more heady than you were looking for, but I at least want you to understand it. The Bible uses faith 99% of the time, let's say, in relationship to its object. Here's what I mean by that. So you got that part, at least if you don't understand it? I really want you to at least have that part in your head, even if you don't understand it yet. In the Bible, God is the object of faith and His promises and His Son. And so we're, we're trusting, we're placing our faith in Him and what He has done. Okay? There's an object to our faith. We're not having faith in faith. We're not having faith in self. There's an object to your faith, but it's not very reliable. We're not having faith in Narnia. We're not having faith in made-up things. Some experience that some guy had that can't be substantiated, no eyewitnesses, nothing. Faith in Christ. Okay? Here's what's going to happen in Luke's account in the book of Acts. He's going to say to people like you and me, he says to the Philippian jailer, not a religious guy, but a guy who knows he has a need, and he says, what, what must I do to be rescued? What must I do to be saved? And Paul, Luke is recording this, says, believe, have faith, same word, on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You'll be rescued from your sins. The object of faith in Christianity is Jesus, who is the one who was among us, real person on real dirt, real real estate in the Middle East, who died one Friday afternoon outside of the city of Jerusalem. You could go there now and see it. You don't say just take it on faith because it never happened. Christianity uses faith as trusting in what actually did happen. And we have Luke's gospel account filling out for us even more historic details so that we can have a clearer understanding of the object of our faith. There's a great saying that's been around for a long time. I don't know who first came up with it, but we should borrow it and keep borrowing it and understand it. And that is, your faith is only as good as its object. Maybe a little headier than you want, but super helpful, super useful. And I think if Luke were standing here, he'd say, that's a good point. That, 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 that'll help you understand my gospel account. Faith is only as good as its object. And when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about the one who was among us, who gave himself up for us, real time, real space, real human being, though more than a human being, a trustworthy object of faith. That's why Luke can speak in terms of certainty. Because we're not talking about fantasy world. We're not talking about the Jesus who, con who contrary to everything historic, contrary to archaeology, contrary to all the other biblical writings, 
walked the North American plant, uh, continent, hung out with the American Indians. We're not talking about that Jesus. And somebody had some vision with some special plate glasses. Take it on faith. No eyewitnesses, no history to back it up. But we're sincere. Well, sincerity is good. But you could be sincerely wrong. We're talking about Jesus, who we ourselves, John says, because he's an eyewitness, saw with our own eyes. We touched with our hands. We're talking about the Jesus who was among us, the real historic figure. And Luke is saying, I want to tell you about him so that you can have certainty, which motivates you to persevere which motivates you to not cave in, which motivates you to not compromise, it'll it'll bolster you and help you and, and keep you on the right track of worshiping Him, the risen Savior. You see? It's awesome. So helpful. So helpful. I'm so thankful that we have this gospel account. I'm thankful we have the other ones too. I'm thankful that we have this one. I like what one scholar said, assurance grounded in propaganda that can be exposed by eyewitnesses is not any great comfort to the doubting. Luke wants to make sure Theophilus, real person, understands that it's more than propaganda. I want you to understand that it's more than propaganda. I'm never going to say to you, you know what, I know it's contrary to everything that anything has ever shown historically, but you should just take it on faith. It's not the way the Bible uses faith. It's faith in Christ, faith in God. And Luke's going to help us with that. He's going to help us with that. Let's be done for now. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you that our hope is not in ourselves. Thank you that our hope is a hope that is unique. Burden us. Burden us to communicate with people clearly and compassionately the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. How just as we are physical beings and spiritual beings, we need a physical Savior and a spiritual Savior. We need one who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who walked among us and was among us and who gave himself physically for us and who was raised from the dead bodily and who ascended and who even right now is interceding on our behalf. That we need one who was more than an example, though he was a great example. We need the very one who gave himself up for us motivate us to speak well and to speak with great joy of this great Savior whose name is Jesus. And as we do so, Lord, motivate us all the more as you have called us to this great, great, great privilege. May our evangelism not be out of some sort of task and guilt. May our evangelism come naturally as we think highly of Christ, that we find ourselves speaking appropriately of him.
throughout the series, equip us throughout the series, open eyes to understand, even bring salvation to those who are in need of it. Change us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.